normally if I have a W-2 job, every dollar of net income I make up to a certain threshold, my employer withholds 7.65% for Social Security and Medicare. And they turn around and they match that 7.65. So every dollar I make, the IRS is getting 15.3% for Social Security and Medicare from me yeah. um, and from my employer. If you're self-employed, you have to pay both sides of that tax, not just the employer employee side, but the employer side as well. And if you have net taxable income in a business, you're materially participating in every dollar of net income after deductions, but every dollar of net income is assessed that self-employment tax. And that's, yeah. again, that's no fun. It stinks if you're, <laughs> you have to pay more tax, but that's where we have so much fun using those rules, using the IRS's methodology to try to make you pay more tax, to use those same rules and those same fact sets to get you out of paying tax that you don't legally out, you don't have to pay. It's not yours right. to pay. Hi, I'm Wyatt. And I'm Grace. And you're listening to Our Dad and your host of the Vacation Rental Revolution podcast. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Vacation Rental Revolution podcast. I'm your host, Sean Moore, and I am really excited to have back for a second time my CPA who really, really understands short-term rentals and investing for real estate professionals, high-income earners, and being able to take advantage of some of the tax advantages in real estate. Mr. Mike Pine from Pine Coast CPAs is joining us for episode number two, Mike. And I don't know if you know this, I think I've told you, but your episode that we recorded about a year and a half, maybe two years ago now, has been our number one episode on the Vacation Rental Revolution podcast ever since we recorded it. So thank you so much for joining us back again. Super happy to be here and also excited to be here, seeing what people have done with lifestyle assets to the Vodacy course and being able to play a role in that with a lot of our shared clients. It's just, it's amazing. It's exciting to see the financial freedom people are building up. And I'm shocked that one of the most listened to episodes of yours is about tax. I love tax. I have a passion for it, but yeah. most people don't. So I'm, I'm yeah. glad people are opening their eyes and ears they, to the tax. They are. Our, uh, the, the title of our episode, I think, was How to Get Uncle Sam to Pay for Your Next Down Payment. And so we'll talk a little bit about what that means and why we, why we titled it that way um, with some of the short-term rental loopholes. But before we get into all of that stuff, you know, some people didn't listen to that first episode. Let's let's li listen or hear a little bit more about who Mike Pine is. Why did you do and why did what led you to taxes? What brought you to where you're at? I love hearing the backstory of where you were at, where you're from, and and what led up to what, what we're doing right now. Yeah, um, since we don't have hours, I'm going to try to give you the abbreviated <laughs> version. But ultimately, you know, I grew up in a in a comfortable family, middle class family. My father's a physician; he was a teaching physician, and he worked his tail off. He was never around when my sister and I were growing up. And I remember one of his capstone achievements where he's being honored with a chair at Emory University. Um, my sister and I went down and saw that and he came back up with tears. I mean, all the, we had thousands of physicians flying from the country from all over the world to be there to honor my father. And it was pretty exciting to see how many lives my dad had touched either directly or indirectly. And afterwards he came up to my sister and I in tears and he said, you know, I'm sitting here realizing I put all this effort to this career, but I was never around for you guys. And we talked about it a little bit more and he felt like, first of all, he was very dedicated to his job, but he was also trying to build financial freedom and be able to retire one day. And he was having to trade time for money, his entire career trading time for money. Um, 
Unfortunately, the government was taking over half of the money that he would make. So he was trading his time for the government and for money. And it really hurt me to see how such a dedicated person, of course, you know, I'm not objective. It's my father. He's the mm -hmm. most awesome hero in the world, in my opinion, but how hard he had worked. And he had to work twice as hard just to get by because the government was taking so much money from him. This is the same time I was starting my career in earnest at PricewaterhouseCoopers and our venture capital private equity group. And I was seeing these billion dollar funds, private equity funds and venture capital funds, making all these really cool tax positions on their tax returns and doing tax planning with us. But we were only working on the funds and we were preparing these K-1s for these billion dollar partnerships, taking really cool tax positions, but could never really see how it was playing out to the ultimate people that pay the tax, the investors. And over time, I realized that's where the key is. The tax code really offers tons of incentives and opportunities for people to help our economy out, to help our national security out, to help our country out. But people don't know it. People, just like we mentioned earlier, people see the tax code as something terrible and boring and scary. But there are these incentives built into the tax code that if you follow them, you're doing your patriotic duty for the country, but you're also able to keep more of your money by doing what the government wants you to do. And I developed a passion for that, wanting to help teach and train people and educate people on what I'm learning in the tax code to make a real difference in their life. And I mean, that was 20 years ago, and we've been doing it ever since. And I love this job. I love tax. That's awesome. I love it. And and I can attest to that. Like you, you really do love tax, right? You, you're, uh, you're, it's something that you're very passionate about. What's interesting to me, and I heard this and I don't know, I'm going to, I'm going to get the exact numbers wrong, but I heard that there's like 7,000 pages of tax code in our tax code and only about a hundred pages or so are actually what you have to do to pay taxes. The rest of them are deductions and write-offs and incentives to go out and stimulate the economy, invest in energy. Oh, there's all these different things that we get rewarded by doing. And housing and real estate happens to be one of those, which is why you hear so many investors take advantage of real estate as an asset class. And we're going to talk about short-term rental real estate specifically, because there's a couple of loopholes that we'll dive into. But there's a lot of incentives out there. And that's, I think, where you really are so passionate about when you and I talked before, you say, listen, it's not, I'm not so passionate about taxes for paying taxes. I'm passionate about taxes because I want to, you know, people should pay the amount of taxes that they owe, but not yeah. a penny more, right? I've heard you say that a whole bunch of times. And you're really passionate about being able to say, okay, you work really hard. Let's figure out how you can really now go pay the least amount of taxes possible by investing or contributing in ways that the government says, hey, we really want that because it does stimulate the economies or in, in different areas. And we're going to reward you for that. Is that is that right? That's absolutely right. And it's it's a little bit bigger numbers than you mentioned. So the tax code, okay. just the internal revenue code, is well over 7,000 pages. But that's just the law that Congress wrote. And then the Treasury Department comes up with the Treasury regulations, which is how do we follow these laws? How What do these laws mean? And those are 70,000 pages. Wow. And just combining those two, not even considering all the tax court case precedent, just those two substantial authorities, you're well over 80,000 pages between the two of them. And less than one half of 1% of all those pages of tax law actually relates to the levying of taxes. Like you said, more than 99.5% of those um, pages 
they go into the incentives that our society has come together and says, hey, this is what our country needs. This is what the people need. We need affordable living. We need alternative energy and green energy. We need these things. So we're going to incentivize the great capitalism in America to go and invest in these type of things to help further on what we want to do. So ultimately, when you're using and leveraging the tax code to save money, to keep some of your hard-earned money, you're doing what the government has asked you to do. And, and if that's not patriotism, I don't know what is. Right. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, we just came back from a mastermind group and we were one of our mastermind members. We, we were in Vegas for four days, just hanging out and uh, doing a little workshop and hanging out and doing some things. And one of our members came up and said, man, Sean, I can't not thank you enough for, for what, you know, we're doing here. But the biggest thing that I got was introducing them is introducing him and his wife to you guys and, and helping them with their taxes. He's a, he's a high income earner. He has um, owns a big business and makes a lot of money and pays a lot of money in taxes. And he, he made a couple acquisitions this past year and you guys helped him with doing everything with material participation, cost segregation, everything else. And he reduced his tax liability for the year by over $500,000. That is awesome. It was, it was huge. And he's like, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. He said, my CPA didn't even know that we could do this. I went and talked to him about it. And, um, you know, with your guys's help, they were able to figure this out. And, and I think that that goes, you know, it's not that he got a refund of $500,000. You and I were talking about this before we hit record, right? Mm -hmm. If you're paying taxes and you're paying big bills and you're a W2 earner or you're a high income earner at some, at some level, there's, you're limited on the, the write-offs that you have. If you, especially if you're a W2 earner, right? Mm -hmm. there, there's just, you're, you're very limited on what you can and can't do. You really have to be able to go invest in things and take advantage of, you know, owning businesses, owning real estate, investing in energy, different things that are out there that are some of your best tax advantages. And, and he was a high income earner, your dad, for example, a physician, you know, teaching physician that, uh, that, probably a w2 job that was a high income yeah. earner didn't have a lot of a lot of ways to write things off right there's you're limited if you're just a w2 earner but if you're paying a lot there are ways to reduce that tax and the liability there absolutely and i mean that's what i've really enjoyed working with your vodacy group in is there are ways to reduce your w2 taxable income and reduce the amount of taxes you owe because of that um, a lot of people say there aren't. And, and granted, so in 2017, we had the Tax Cut and Jobs Act come out, and it took away the ability for W-2 employees to deduct what we called unreimbursed employee expenses. So it, it literally took away any deduction. So if you have a W-2 and you don't have alternative investments, you're going to pay your taxes and you're going to pay the tax rate based on your W-2 income. Yeah. But there are ways to reduce that income. And we get to do that a lot with people. And it's legal. I agree. Like you said earlier, everyone needs to pay every dollar they're legally obligated to pay. We shouldn't pay any more. That's not being a good steward over the money you have. Yeah, absolutely. And and so let's, you know, let's kind of roll back the 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 carpet a little bit and talk about some of the details because we hear a lot of misinformation out there. A lot of people will come to us um, and and they're kind of misinformed, if you will, on mm -hmm. certain things. They get confused on one thing versus another because they sound very, very similar. And so, you know, one of the things that a lot of people get confused about, well, let's, before we, we before we go in there, let's, yeah. let's start at a high level. And why don't we talk about what really we talk about the short-term rental loophole, like, right. How do we, how do we take this asset class specifically and why do we love it so much from a tax perspective? 
outside of just the investment perspective, why on the tax side do we really like and why are we able to take such advantage of short-term rentals specifically? Okay. Before we go there, though, let's talk about real estate taxation in okay, general. Yeah. Great. Um, so the way we're raised as CPAs or in college with accounting and, and, and as we're learning the tax law, we're, we have it ingrained in our heads. It's taught, hey, if it's a real estate activity, that activity is what we call a passive activity for 99.9% .9 of the public. Unless they are real estate professionals, if they invest in real estate, it's going to be a passive activity. And that matters because the IRS makes you bucket your income in three different buckets. You have to track it separately, treat it separately. You have your active income, which comes from your wages, pension, a business that you're in. Any active losses can be used to offset active income. So you can get deductions, but only if they're active. Then you have another bucket that I'll briefly go over. It's just called your portfolio income bucket. It's any kind of bank interest, dividends, capital gains from buying and selling stocks on, on Wall Street. Those are your portfolio income. As we most people know, you can have a large capital loss, but you can't take that entire loss in any year to offset your active income. You can only take up to $3,000 a year, and that's your portfolio income. In between portfolio income and your active income, we have something that's called passive income, and you're supposed to track all your passive income and deductions separately. And if you have a big net passive loss, you can't use that to offset your W-2 income or even offset your, your, your stock income, your portfolio income. So again, the IRS has defaulted that any real estate investment is considered passive unless you're a real estate professional. However, and we'll probably I think we probably should get into the real estate professional rules a little yes, bit. Yes, for sure. Yeah. But just to kind of pre prelude it, the short-term rentals, we say there's a short-term rental loophole. It's not really a loophole, it's an actual part of the Treasury regulations that's written, and it says any real estate, actually any rental activity that has an average period of customer use or an average lease period during the tax year of seven days or less, by default, is not a real estate professional activity. So real estate professional activity rules don't apply to short-term rentals if their average lease is seven days or less. So let's go into what is a real estate professional because they get confused a lot. I, I have- yes. The, the what we call the short-term rental loophole. I've got the Treasury regulation citation up on my whiteboard over here, right, right next to me, because I speak to so many other CPAs out there. Say, hey, you told my client they could do this, but they can't. It's a real estate professional activity. Yes. I'm like, no, it's not. Um, I won't bore you with a very long citation. It's, uh, but it's in the Treasury regulations of the passive activity loss rules or 469. Um, to be a real estate professional like a realtor or a developer if you spend your the majority of your time working in a real estate professional job you're considered a real estate professional and if you are a real estate professional then you don't have passive losses from real estate any depreciation you take on real estate is active but yeah. most people can't be real estate professionals to be a real estate professional you have to hit two hurdles one is you have to spend 750 hours a year you yourself you can't combine your time with your spouse yourself have to spend 750 hours a year or more on real estate professional activities. That's not that impossible to do. That works out to be just under 15 hours a week. Mm -hmm. You can do it. I can do it. Um, most other professionals can do it. But then the second hurdle is you have to spend more time on real estate professional activities than all of your other activities combined. 
So at my firm, I work close to 3,000 hours a year. If I wanted to be a real estate professional, yeah. I have to work 3,001 hours a year. And there's not enough time in the year to do that. So it's not right. possible. So again, if I'm a real estate professional, I could go buy long-term single family rental or an apartment complex. And as a real estate professional, that's considered active. And any depreciation I can take on my real estate holdings can offset my W-2 income. Yeah. Now, let's get back to reality. I'm not a real estate professional. Most of us can't be, right, Sean? Yes. Yeah, it's it's really, really difficult. And this is one of the biggest, I'm glad we're going here because this is one of the biggest misconceptions or mistakes that a lot of people talk to us about, same as you just mentioned. And it's advice coming from their CPA even. When they go and talk to them about this, their CPA assumes they're talking about becoming a real estate professional and their CPA says, rightfully so, you're not going to qualify as a real estate professional because you have this full-time job over here doing this. And it's going to be, you know, you're, 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 it's just not going to be realistic to qualify for that. So the, the CPA is not giving them bad advice. What they're, what they're not understanding is they're talking about two different things. Yeah. And it is in, in most CPAs defense, it's really buried in the details of the treasury regulations. Yeah. I mean, you have to get through 30 or 40 pages of the 1.469 regs before you even get to the small subparagraph that says any rental property that has an average lease length of seven days or less is not a real estate professional activity. Yeah. But when you recognize that and understand it, then what does it mean a short-term rental is? If it's not a real estate professional activity, it defaults under the IRS's regulations, it defaults to a normal trader business. So any normal trader business can either be a passive trader business or an active trader business. If again, if it's passive, you can't take tax losses from a passive activity to offset your W-2 income. But if it's active, you absolutely can, as long as you follow all the other rules. Um, so how does it become active versus passive? You have to materially participate. And there's a whole bunch of rules and a lot of case law and a lot of history on what is material participation. So let me just rewind a minute and, or go back a little bit and, and kind of break out where these rules came from for material participation. They actually came out with most of these rules and the court cases are the IRS trying to tell people and arguing, hey, you're making money in an active trader business. You're not paying your Social Security and Medicare taxes, your payroll taxes on that, but it's an active trader business. And we think you're materially participating. So you need to pay us those self-employment taxes or those payroll taxes. Um, and that's where the majority of the case law and history of these rules comes from, is the IRS trying to force people into being material participants, even if they really weren't. If it was really a passive yeah. activity, you shouldn't have to pay Social Security tax on it. But the IRS wants people to pay more taxes. So they developed this whole big rule set on, hey, you're a material participant. Your business is an active trader business. Um, we want you to pay your payroll taxes, but we get to use those rules. The IRS can't have their cake and eat it too. We get to have some of that cake and we can use those rules to say, okay, will you argue that I'm a material participant? And because my vacation rental is seven days or less average lease during the year, average lease length, it's an active trader business and I've got all this accelerated depreciation on it. I've got a big tax loss, maybe cash income, but a big tax loss. I get yeah. to use that to offset my active income. Yes, if I make income on it and I materially participate, I have to pay payroll taxes. But in the year that I have a big loss, not only do I not owe payroll taxes, IRS, you owe me a big deduction on my W-2 from it. And, and those are kind of the rule sets that we've 
further refined and try to understand and coach our clients through so that they can avail themselves of this active status. It makes, it's awesome. It's beautiful when you can do that. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. And, and the numbers are huge. We'll give some examples of, I mean, I just barely, barely went through it on property. And so we'll give some examples, but let's just, so we talk about material participation. What, what is that? Like, what does that mean? Right. There's, there's other, like, there's ways to qualify as a material participant. There's ways not to. One of the things that I always hear is, oh, I've got a property manager on my property, so I won't qualify that, you know, if I've got a property manager, I can't qualify. That's not true, right? There's no. things that you, there's the material participation has checks that you have to follow and, and yeah. ways to actually qualify. You have to follow those rules, but having a property manager is not one of the, one of the criteria. And no. so I have property managers on all my properties and I qualify. And so let's talk about what that actually means to qualify and why we would want to qualify. Right. And, and yeah. we, we kind of already, we are already touched on it. We want to qualify so that we can take these losses and turn them into active losses and be able to write them off against active income and depreciation and bonus depreciation is one of those losses, right? That's one of the, that, that it ends up being a loss. It's not a cash loss to us. We're depreciating a property. And so the depreciation, so we'll, we'll dive into that. I'm going to, I'm giving, going to give you a whole bunch of tangents to go off on, but let's, let's awesome. talk about the material participation first of what that is and kind of what qualifies somebody to be able to be a material participant, even if they have a property manager. Yeah. So generally speaking, being a material participant means you're actively involved in the day-to-day -day operations of a business. Um, but then we go back to the IRS rules and their rulings and the court cases that the IRS has tried to tell people and, and successfully has have won when people say, hey, this is a passive activity. I don't know payroll taxes. The IRS has used these rules to say, no, you are actively managing this business. Therefore, you are a material participant. That's all material participation is. Then there's the guidelines. If you go out and Google and, and search um, material participation, passive activity, IRS, just put those in your Google search term. It'll take you to their page where they say, these are the seven ways you can achieve or you do achieve material participant. Um, it doesn't, the material participant test, some of the more enigmatic ones, they do have you look at what other people are doing or if you have a management company, how much are they actually providing and yeah. services versus you. But the one, what I call the gold standard for qualifying as a material participant is if you spend 500 hours or more actively managing a business, by default, you are a material participant. There's no way you can get away with not subjecting yourself to payroll taxes if you spend 500 hours or more. It doesn't matter if you have 10 employees, if you have two management companies, if you spend 500 hours or more, the IRS will tell you you have to pay payroll taxes. So you can tell the IRS, I am a material participant by default. Yeah. Um, regardless of who else is in it. Um, when you say payroll taxes, really quick, what do you, you're paying payroll taxes on the income that the business, the business earns, or what are you, what are you paying payroll taxes on? Good question. So normally if I have a W2 job, every dollar of net income I make up to a certain threshold, my employer withholds 7.65% for social security and Medicare. And they turn around and they match that 7.65. So Every dollar I make, the IRS is getting 15.3% for Social Security and Medicare from me yeah. um, and from my employer. If you're self-employed, you have to pay both sides of that tax, not just the employer employee side, but the employer side as well. 
And if you have net taxable income in a business, you're materially participating in every dollar of net income after deductions, but every dollar of net income is assessed that self-employment tax. And that's, again, that's no fun. It stinks if you're, (laughs) you have to pay more tax, but that's where we have so much fun using those rules, using the IRS's methodology to try to make you pay more tax, to use those same rules and those same fact sets to get you out of paying tax that you don't legally out. You don't have to pay. It's not yours right. to pay. Um, right. So that's the payroll tax. Okay. So, so we talked about kind of the gold standard. If, if I'm going to participate 500 hours on this property at, in then there's another rule that's kind of down the line, but you know, like you said, there's seven different ways to that you're going to qualify as a material participant. That gold standard, it doesn't really matter. If I have 500 hours, it doesn't matter if somebody has more hours than me, anything else. I, I'm now materially participating. Correct. 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 Yeah. Then if you work your way down, so they give you the top seven ones, and again, the first one is the 500 hours. The second one, I try to stay away from because it's just too enigmatic. It's yeah, it's it's too wishy-washy. But it says if you provide substantially all of the services for that property, we can use that and have used it in times. But again, there it's not. There's no exact science to that. Right. Um, it's a it's a substance. There's, there's some gray area. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of gray area. Yeah. Gray areas are good, but we try to avoid them when yeah. we're taking tax deductions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we want go to be for able... the gray areas when when we owe tax. But, right. Yeah. It, yeah. But when you're taking the deduction, the last thing you want is a you know a letter saying, "Hey, we think you owe this," and and it's up for argument, and there's no real defining. Okay, this is right and this is wrong. That gets to be difficult to argue. Right. On both exactly. sides. Yeah. So. Avoiding the second one, which has got a lot of gray area. The next one, the third one on the IRS's website is 100 hours and more than any other individual or company. So you can manage a property, spend 101 hours on it. And if you're the one actively managing it for 101, or even if you have a management company and they only spend 30 hours, you've spent significantly more time than they have. You are a material participant. But again, the burden of proof is on you or on the taxpayer. Yeah. The IRS comes and says, you didn't materially participate. Well, guess whose job it is to prove to them that they're wrong. It's your job and right. your, your tax professional's job. So that's where creating time logs and tracking them in great detail contemporaneously is your get out of jail free card if the IRS ever challenges you on this. Um, and you have to be able to prove if you don't hit that 500 hour standard, you have to be able to substantiate that you spent more time than your cleaners did or more right. time than your management company did more time than your handyman did. Um, but if you've got the substantiation for that, you can show that you spent hundred hours or more and more than all of the other people involved in the business, your material participant. That's what I call the bronze standard. Yeah. And I find that 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 standard can work really, really well for investors who acquire properties toward the end of the year, right? You know, when you're, you might buy a property and it's going to launch in, you know, November or December and you got your management company ready to launch it and your cleaners are there and you might've only had a, a handful of turnovers, but you took all the time acquiring it, setting it up and getting it ready. And so you might not even hit your 500 hours, but your 100 hours or more. And then all of a sudden your management partners or your cleaners might only have 20 hours or 10 hours sometimes because it's so, so, you know, you're launching toward the end of a season or an end of a year that, that tax year, that's where I find that standard can be. I don't know if that's true, but that's where I see that coming into play a lot more often than not is toward the end of the year. That's where you can kind of, that box can be checked. Yeah. 
I was talking to a tax attorney about a year ago about this. He used to be an IRS agent. And we talked about that specific example. We had a client bought a place in November, barely got into service the first week of December. Um, eventually was looking for a management company, couldn't find one in time. So they were doing it all themselves and they hit over the hundred hours. And the, the ex-IRS agent said, I don't know, man, that seems pretty aggressive to me. And so I turned it around on him. I said, okay, well, if you're still working for the IRS and you saw this person, they have net income, do they owe self-employment tax? And he said, well, yeah, they spent over a hundred hours or more. Look, they, they materially participated. I was like, so how does that change the facts? Yeah. Like, that's a good point. So I converted him on that one as well. Nice. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, you're taking the rule. And I mean, you, like you said, they, they can't have their cake and eat it too. Everybody, you know, everybody gets a piece of the cake as long as the rules are there. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. So let's, let's talk. So we talk about the, you know, real estate professional status, material participation being complete, totally different things, right? Completely different. You know, we're really now becoming part of an active trader business. Let's talk about like really the the benefits because, uh, well, let's first talk about depreciation. Many people don't really understand what depreciation is. Um, people who invest in real estate and, and different things, we love depreciation, but that doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people if you've never done it. So let's talk a little bit about depreciation and then why we talk about some of the bonus depreciation things that we do. Yeah. So depreciation comes down to, comes from tax law a long time ago, but basically most people, business owners and the IRS and government all agreed, hey, if I buy an asset, let's say I'm a taxi cab driver and I go buy a taxi cab. That taxi cab is going to provide me revenue as a business owner for more than one year. And the IRS said, because of that, the money you spent on that taxi cab, we shouldn't be able to deduct or expense the entire purchase price in the first year. Instead, we're going to decide how long of a useful life that vehicle has, and we'll let you take the cost of that vehicle as a tax deduction, but over the useful life of the asset. So vehicles got a five-year life, and I'm going to simplify things in general terms um, for the purpose of the discussion. But if I spent $10,000 on a taxi cab, instead of being able to deduct $10,000 immediately, the IRS says, hey, it's got a five-year useful life. So we'll let you deduct $2,000 per year of that for the next five years, and you get your deduction. That's the basics of depreciation. In rental properties, you go buy a house on that the, the house that you're buying, you're buying land and a house. Now, the IRS says that house is depreciable. The land, we won't ever let you depreciate. Land doesn't go down in value. It goes up. You don't get depreciation. Houses, I don't think they really go down in value either unless they're just falling apart. But they say it is a business use asset. We'll let you depreciate over a period of time. If it's a normal residential property, the IRS says you can depreciate over 27 and a half years. You can't deduct the whole cost today, but you can depreciate the cost of the house over the next 27 and a half years. Or if it's a commercial property, like a hotel, we'll let you depreciate over 39 years. So you get to take a little deduction each year for the length of period of time that, that, that your asset is a useful asset, according to IRS useful lives. So that's the basics yeah. of depreciation. And so you automatically, you get this write-off without a, and it's not necessarily a loss, right? It's being able to depreciate. So that's the nice thing about depreciation is it's not really losses, but we treat it as a loss. It's a business write-off. And as you know, uh, you know, I don't know if it's called, you know, really a paper loss is depreciation, but it's, it's treated as a loss in the business, which is why you can have a cash flowing asset 
and still have a loss on the taxes to be able to write it off when you start to add in depreciation. Yeah. Depreciation really is this magical deduction. I mean, you yeah. buy in an asset that you have every reasonable expectation it's going to go up in value, but you're allowed to take a deduction, a tax deduction for the cost of that asset, according to the IRS rules and regulations. Um, I do consider it a paper loss because if you're cash flowing positive, but your tax return says, hey, you, you, you've got a $100,000 loss because of depreciation, that's a loss on paper. But look at your bank yeah. account. Hopefully your cash flow is increasing yeah. each year and not going down. So it's Exactly. Magical. And it's, yeah, it is magical. And that's why, that's why real estate investors love depreciation because the cost of the asset is usually fairly significant. So they're bigger dollar amounts, like different than the $10,000 taxi example, yeah. right? It's, these are, these are large assets that we're able to leverage by the way. So we're not usually paying, having to come out of pocket for the whole thing. And so when you're able to leverage them and put 10 or 20% down, but you can depreciate the entire thing, all of a sudden, that's how things start to really add up where you're saying, when we say we can get the IRS to pay for the down payment on our house, this is how we do it, right? And so we're we're kind of unpacking the strategy here a little bit, and then we're going to bring it all back together and kind of show an example of what that really looks like and what that really means. And so let's 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 go there now, Mike. We were talking beforehand, like when somebody we say you can really get a hundred percent of your down payment back by buying an asset, so your net into these properties zero. So assuming. Yep. All of these examples that we talk about, guys, just as a, you know, we keep saying the same thing. This is assuming you're paying taxes. You know, you're not going to get a big refund back from the IRS if you didn't pay taxes. You're you're going to get this in a, re, a taxable, you know, the your tax liability is going to get reduced by a certain amount, which ultimately means if you didn't buy the asset, you're paying the money to the IRS. If you did buy the asset, you're going to be able to not pay that money to the IRS because you have this asset now, right? Right. Ultimately, we're talking, it's providing you a deduction from your taxable income. It's not a tax yeah. credit. It gives you no. a reduction of your taxable income, which reduces the amount of taxes you owe. But like you said, if you didn't owe any taxes in the beginning, it can't, if you only owe $500 of taxes before you go buy an asset and depreciate it, you can only get a $500 tax benefit. But assuming you're paying taxes for the rest of this conversation, let's assume you're paying taxes in one of the top tax brackets um, or higher marginal income tax brackets. That's where you get the big savings. Um, yeah, And that's where even today with bonus depreciation, having ratcheted down 20% this past year, you can still conceivably get your entire 10% down payment back as a reduction in your taxes owed to the U.S. government in your first year here in 2023. Okay, so let's let's do that. Let's uh, let's take a hypothetical example with 10% down on a $500,000 property or two, whatever, whatever numbers are easy to run in your head really quick so that we can show how we would actually get that money back and what that would actually look like for us. Yeah. To make the numbers rounder for my head to work. Yeah. Let's make it a $1.1 million property you buy. Okay. Um, okay. 100,000 of that is the value of the land. So you spent 1.1 million, you got a property with a building and land. The land's worth 100,000. You don't get to depreciate that, but you have a building now worth a million dollars. I think we need to go into the detail cost segment a little bit, but let's just do yeah. the basics yes. now. So on that million dollar property, if you were, and let's say you only put $110,000 down to buy this, you put 10% right. down for that $1.1 million property. If you're in the top tax bracket and you get a really good cost segregation study, you're very likely to have 
$103,000 in reduction in taxes on that one property right there, $103,000 if you're in the top tax bracket. So you buy a property, you got a million dollar property and a $1.1 million property. You do all the things that we're going to talk about here in a minute, get the depreciation, you reduce your taxable income by $350,000. And that again, just reduces your taxable income. It doesn't reduce your taxes. But yeah. as your in taxable income reduces, then the formula where you take your taxable income, multiply it by your tax rates, that's what reduces your total tax owed. And you can save over $100,000 in taxes in that example. Yeah. So for like, if I was making, you know, if I'm a, if I'm making $350,000, I have a $350,000 write-off. I'm not paying any taxes on that 350, right? Just to, let's just assume that wipes it out. Well, in a yeah 35% tax bracket, I'm paying $103,000 in taxes. I put $110,000 into the property at 10% down. Well, now I got, now basically I'm into that property, nothing because I was able to use that asset to now depreciate bonus depreciate in this case at 80%. And I'm net into the property $7,000 in this example, right? Exactly. So it's still very doable. But in all honesty, most people that we meet aren't paying the top tax rate on all their income. They might be making $300,000, $500,000. So in reality, they're probably only getting half of their 10% down payment back. Um, right, but right. the really high income earners, they absolutely, the, the IRS is subsidizing each annual purchase of a new property for them. Yeah. So it, what about, um, what if I was not, what if I was only paying $50,000 a year in taxes? Is this something that you can carry forward? Yeah, good question. So as long as you're a material participant and the year you have the depreciation, it creates an active loss. Once active, always active. So let's say you get, in this case, you're only making $50,000 in income, but you have a $350,000 deduction. Well, that first year, you eliminate your income, you bring it from 50 down to zero by using 50,000 of your loss, and you still have 300,000 loss or net operating loss that's going to carry forward and be used against future income. There's a lot of complicated rules or details where you got to jump through hoops and stuff, but yeah. overall, you've got a $300,000 active loss to offset $300,000 of income in the future. Nice. Okay, so now let's now let's unpack a few more layers like you mentioned with a cost seg and what that really is when we're talking about doing that um, to be able to come up with those numbers of what that what that write-off would end up looking like. Yeah. So cost segregations are actually something the IRS wants you to do. You're supposed to do them. Just no one does. And when you do cost segregations, it's lowering your tax bill. So the IRS really, I don't know if they've ever slapped anyone on the hand for not doing a cost segregation. But again, let's go back to our example. We buy this $1.1 million property. 100,000 goes to the land. We got a million dollars on this house. That's what the cost of this house was. The IRS says you're supposed to depreciate the assets that you're using in a business over their useful life. Again, if it's a residential house, it has a 27 and a half year useful life. But that house has things in it. The IRS says you should be depreciating over shorter life. It has countertops and cabinetry and flooring and all those things have seven-year useful life, has appliances that have five-year useful life, fixtures, you name it. It's got wiring, so many things in the house. The IRS says, that's not real property. Those are tangible personal property. You need to appreciate that over shorter life. But you know, let's face it, even if I had one and put one million to buy a house, I have no idea how much I'm paying for the floor. I'm just buying the yeah. house. I have yeah. no idea how much I'm paying for the AC ducting. Um, 
So that's where you get what's called a cost segregation study done. And this is an engineering-based study done by someone who knows the rules and knows engineering. And they go and basically reverse engineer your house and say, okay, this house that he bought and and these reports that they come up with, Sean, are like 50, 60 pages. Yeah. I mean, they're really detailed reports. They're using all these things that are way over my head in the construction realm and net replacement value realm. This is how much of the million dollars they spent. Well, 28,000 belongs to the kitchen floor because of X, Y, Z. But they go through and they break out all the different components of that house and then say, this is what the IRS says the floor's useful life is, what the IRS says the driveway's useful life is, and segregates it out. So again, on average, a million dollar house, you're going to, if it's a freestanding single family house, you're going to get between 25% to 35% of the cost broken out in a cost segregation for shorter life assets. So you buy a million, let's say you get on the high end again, $350,000 of your house is actually shorter life assets. And under current laws, all those shorter life assets are eligible for bonus depreciation. Yeah. And and then that's where that big write-off comes into when you can bonus depreciate it, which just means you're going to take it all up front or as much as you can up front right now. The current tax year of 2023, we could take 80% of it up front, right? Yeah. And and the, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of reasoning in Washington why they came up with the bonus depreciation rules. And maybe we can get in the history of that in, in a little bit later in this conversation. But the fact is, the main reason, at least the argument, the proponents for bonus depreciation were making in DC, and I agree with it, was we need more affordable housing in this country. Mm-hmm. The population is growing a lot faster than our housing supply is. So we need more. Well, how do we do that? We incentivize people to go build and buy more of these properties, get the economy to build this and and grow the useful and and available properties for people to live in and to rent in. So they gave this bonus depreciation as an incentive for people to do it. And that's all you're doing if you take this incentive is you're doing what the government's asked us to do, what Congress needs us to do to help the country out. Um, And again, in 2023, it's 80%. It was 100% from 2017 all the way through 2022. But now 80% of all assets that have a useful life of 20 years or less, 80% of that cost can be written off immediately as a bonus depreciation. The remaining 20% gets depreciated over the actual useful life of the the assets. Most of it's five-year assets. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So let's let's uh, let's show an actual example because I just went through this a property that I bought in 2022, and we went through that. We and we bought this property in June. I paid eight hundred five thousand dollars for the property. I put twenty percent down, so it was a just a one hundred sixty two thousand dollars or so down on the property. And so I, was, I put a little bit more down on it um, versus the ten percent, and ended up materially participating. I do have a full service management company on that property, but we went out there um, and we, we um, ended up, you know, we were out there for the setup and we did different things. I mean, we tracked it all like to your point, making sure that we actually qualified for material participation, which we did. And so at the end of the year, we qualify for material participation. We ended up deciding, okay, we're going to do a cost segregation study. And you're exactly right. These are like 50 pages when I come back and I did not look at anything except for the number on the last page. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> so, um, but I ended up having on this property about a $244,000 and change, um, write off, right. Mm-hmm. After they took the land out and did my study, which was, which was toward the high end. I think I was around 31 or 32% of the, of the, the land or the uh, building value that we were able to get cost segged out and, uh, being able to write off. 
we are in a higher um, income bracket that ended up being a net to us of about a $95,000 write-off um, or not write-off, $245,000 write-off, $95,000 reduction in the taxes we're paying. And so my net into this property, that covered more than half of my down payment, right? I, I ended up, my net into that property is about $65,000. And I mean, that's a that's a big deal to be able to reduce your taxes by $95,000 on a property that I was able to buy that is cash flowing and doing really well for us. And so it, it's, uh, I mean, and ultimately reduces our liability significantly. And so it, it and that's, it, what are the reasons like to me, like we see it, the, we started this conversation off with one of our mastermind members who I just left with this weekend. They have a few other properties, bigger properties and paying a lot in taxes. Again, they're, they they reduce their tax liability by $500,000. Huge. Awesome. You know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's amazing. And so very, very powerful for those of you to be able to, if you're like, man, I'm just paying too much in taxes, it's something to consider as an asset class. But also, if you own these properties and you're buying these types of properties, it might be something you've never really thought about really being able to take advantage of and participate in because maybe you didn't know about it. Maybe your CPAs hasn't run down that road and known about it. Because let's be honest, it, I mean, the tax code, like you said, 80,000 pages, is any CPA supposed to understand all of that? And if it's not something they work with on a regular basis and short-term rentals are fairly a fairly new asset class as far as being mainstream. And, um, and, and so it's not your CPA, doesn't mean you have a bad CPA. It's just that they don't, you know, they probably haven't run across this too many times, right? And so let's, one of the things that you always get asked is, and I want to kind of finish with two things. One, let's talk about what really qualifies for material participation? Like what do we, what qualifies as time that we can spend to where we actually participate that we can track? And then, and then I want to wrap into what are some of the pros and cons of doing and taking advantage of this? Are there reasons we wouldn't want to do this, for example, with our assets? Yeah. Let's start off with the first. So what, yeah. quali- what kind of activities qualify for material participation? Any ordinary, necessary, customary things that you need to do to improve your business, to run your business, those things count. That can be anything from doing your bookkeeping for your business. That's running the business. That can be speaking to the contractors. That can be looking and talking to guests and and answering their their questions on their text or their their messaging apps, all of those things. But also in, in a vacation rental world, you're doing more than just renting a room for the night. You're renting an experience and you're doing your best as, as people in the Vodacy community have learned to do a really good job. You're trying to set your property, the, pro- the experience that your property offers apart from all the rest. So you get the higher rates per night, you get the higher occupancy. Well, a lot of ways to do that is your market research, those guest books that you provide your, your guests saying, hey, these are the awesome rocking trails to go down to. These are the best golf courses. These are the best restaurants to go to. And these are the ones to stay away from. You're really engineering and trying to improve your guest experience by offering that. Well, all the time you spend researching those activities, researching those restaurants or those providers or the boat rental places. Those activities you're spending, you're doing it for the benefit of your business to improve your guest experience. Those activities qualify within reason. As long as you're honestly doing them for the benefit yeah. of your business. Yeah. If you're going out and just going to every fancy five-star dining place within two hours of your place and, and you're not 
trying to help or improve your guest experience at all. It's just for you to enjoy it. The IRS is going to see through that. But if you're truly doing activities for the benefit of your business, they count. Yeah. Sometime that doesn't count that surprises a lot of people is all the time you spend researching, underwriting, and looking for your first property. The IRS is and the tax courts upheld the IRS argument a few years back. If this is your first vacation rental property, before you get a property under contract, you're not in the vacation rental business. You're investing. So any time spent doing underwriting, um, looking at listings, all the way up until you're under contract or your first property, that is personal investment time, doesn't qualify for material participation time. However, if you're looking for a second property or a fifth property, once you already have an active trader business in the vacation rental world, once you're managing that and materially participating in it, and you're trying to grow another or grow your portfolio by adding more properties, that is material participation time because you have the business. You're just looking to expand the business. You're already materially yeah. participating. So additional time, that would count, but only if you already have a business in service before you start looking at property number two. Travel can count, but it can also not count. You just have to be careful with that. Um, general, The general rule of thumb in all tax deductions, can I deduct my travel costs? Can I, and does my time count towards material participation? The IRS says your normal daily commute is a personal commute. That's not a business commute. So when I drive to and from the office or my first location office, that time wouldn't count if it was for material participation purposes. I couldn't deduct my mileage from when I drove from my home into the office this morning. But if I go drive to a second location, that's not part of my normal commute. That's not my personal commute. That's business commuting time. That time could count. So if you have one property, um, your first vacation rental, and it's a couple hours away from your home, and you travel there and back from your home to the property, and you do most of your work on the property's location, then the IRS is going to say the time you drove to and from it, that's personal commute. That won't count for material participation. But in reality, people spend more time managing their property, not always, but generally speaking, more time managing their property from their house or even their normal day work or day jobs office. And they only go occasionally to go check up on things or fix things or be there when someone needs them to be. If they spend more time managing their property from any other location besides the actual property's location than they do when they're at the location, then their travel time could very conceivably and arguably would count towards material participation. I just muddy that up big time, Sean. No, no, it's no, I think it was really clear on. And the only, the only clarification that I would like to, for people to realize is we're talking about what qualifies for material participation hours, right? Not necessarily expenses to your business, because if you have a, if you kind of started a vacation rental business and you're investing in, you know, education and your time, your underwriting time, especially on the front end, before you own a property, you can still write off things as far as expenses, right? And you're just not, you're not accumulating hours that are going to add toward your material participation until you actually own the property. Right. Right. Is it owning the property or going under contract on a property? Or is that a little bit gray? It is a gray area. Thanks for asking. So in the particular court case in the Third Circuit Court where the IRS challenged this, it was a person who had bought a vacation rental. It was her first vacation rental. Um, and what they had said, the IRS argued that, hey, until she owns the property, then all that time is personal 
investment time. It's not material yeah. participation for business time. The tax court decided, and I don't know why, but the tax court said, well, anytime after she was under contract counts, anytime before that doesn't count. But it also had the opening that if she'd already had a business up and running, then it's very conceivable all the time could have counted for material participation. But right now, in a perfect world, just to be very conservative, make sure you own the property before you really need that time. But if you almost have 500 hours um, after you bought the property and closed on it, but there's a couple between being under contract and actually close on the property, it's a good chance it can count. Just make sure you're talking with a good tax professional to help you decide if you truly qualify for material participation before you take the deductions. Nice. Yeah. And and uh and and again, you this is not something there are a lot of things we talk about that we can kind of figure out and do on our own. This is one of those things that you really want to talk to a qualified tax professional. It's why we recommend you guys so highly and why so many of our Vodacy family uses you guys because you guys really do understand this. And this is not something that is common enough um, you're, that most people are are probably, you're not going to do this on your own. So if you're listening to this, you really are going, if you're going to run down this road, you always want to talk to a qualified professional that really understands it on strategy wise too, on the planning side, not after you decided to do it all. And then you call somebody back up, right? That's right. one of the things that we, we always talk about, Mike, it's, it's, uh, it's much easier to get the advice on the front end so that you go, you know, especially because everybody's situation is different. And it might be when you're talking about those, what are some of the common reasons that people might not want to do this and might not want to take advantage of material participation uh, are there reasons that you see that people might not it might not be yeah. worth doing that lifestyle is the big reason right to be a material participant you're going to be working your tail off yeah. if you buy a vacation rental and you're managing it yourself or even work with a hybrid manager you're going to work your tail off compared to a passive investment um, for tax purposes we'd love for it to be active if it offers deductions but for lifestyle purposes as i'm planning if you if you don't want to work on something hard, you're not going to be a material participant. It does take work. So you got to make the right lifestyle decision first. Um, another common axiom I use is say is don't let your tax tail wag your business, your life dog or your investment dog. So, I mean, you can get these great tax deductions, but if it makes you miserable, it causes your family to break up. Don't do it, man. It's not yeah. worth it. Yeah. What strategically, like, is there some people who buy, um, like this doesn't work if you're, or it does, but you're probably not going to do this if you're going to be selling the property really soon. Cause you're going to recapture that. If you do this, you spend all this time and money and effort to do this. You get a big tax, um, deduction, and then you decide to sell the property that next year you're recapturing that anyways. Right. Right. Good point. So I, with all <clears throat> deductions related to accelerated depreciation, that means taking depreciation instead of over the period of time you normally would, you accelerate it into the first year or into a couple of years. One big reason you wouldn't want to do that is if, like Sean says, you're selling your property in a year or two, because you have to deal with what's called depreciation recapture. So you could pay all this money for a cost seg specialist and tax advisors to figure this out, take this position and save a bunch of money this year. But if you turn around and sell it the very next year, you're going to pay that money back. You're yeah. probably going to pay, generally speaking, the same amount of money that you saved. But then you also paid money for a tax advisor. You paid money to a cost seg specialist. And that is an out-of-pocket cost that you probably won't recover in a quick right. year. Um, yeah. yeah. And a lot of time and effort. Like you mentioned before, you're, you're going to put a lot of time and effort into something that you, you're 
you're not getting the benefits of that too. Right. So you, you could make it a little more passive. So, um, you know, you and I talk about kind of arbitrary numbers of, you know, how long you are you really going to hold it before it really makes sense for me? I always look and say, okay, if it's not going to be a five year or more hold, and my plan isn't to hold this for more than five years, I might not do it, you know, and um, now that could be a different number for everybody, you could you make the argument that, hey, you're better off doing it, even if you're gonna have it for two or three years, and being able to figure out even 1031 ing some of that with that depreciation and into another property. So depending on what your goals are, that's why having a qualified tax professional, you can talk about the talk about your plans all the way through to help you really decide if this is the right fit and the right the right road to run down. Because it can be a really, really powerful way to really build the portfolio as well. If you're building a portfolio for the long term, and being able to take one, you know, one down payment and parlay it into multiple properties, or even part of one down payment, let's say you only got half of your down payment back, you only have to save up now that next that, that other half to be able to go buy that next property. And so you can accelerate your portfolio building really, really quickly, without always having to come up with another 10 or 20% down for every single property. Yeah, that's when we've seen it most powerful. Um, yeah, when you have people that that grew their portfolio from zero to eight properties in five years, um, they can do that quicker. Like you said, if you're using the tax law to leverage your buying power, and yeah, you can you can grow it a lot faster. Snowball it basically. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mike, this is uh, this has been a great conversation. We're going to we're going to kind of wrap up, but I want to wrap up with. You guys just started a brand new podcast. It's getting a lot of steam and I love it. I've been listening to it. Um, it's called the Hidden Money Podcast and you guys have hiddenmoney.com. And I would love to talk a little bit about that, what you guys chat about on there. Um, I, I'm, I would love to point people in that direction as well. But tell us what you guys kind of cover and talk about on the Hidden Money Podcast. Yeah, so the whole name came from the concept that we talked about earlier in this in this show is the majority, the super, super majority of the tax code offers incentives for people to save taxes. That is hidden money within the tax code. There's so many areas of hidden money in that tax code. And we try to explore some of those in a way that's not going to bore most people. Yeah. It probably bores most people, but we try to add it exciting. We bring on good guests and we're just unpeeling and unpacking different opportunities that exist, not just in the tax code, but mostly, but within other areas of business and in life that um, there's just hidden money, your money just sitting there waiting for you to take it. And we try to unpack those in the podcast. Yeah. And it's not just about short-term rentals, right? No. I mean, you guys know that there's a, you know, you talk, I've listened to a number of the episodes, you know, there's, there's some main areas that the the government wants to really incentivize investors to, to go grow. And a lot of that is like you mentioned, housing is one of them. We're talking about kind of real estate, but energy is one of them. I mean, there's a lot of different, different, um, incentives that that you can really that there's a lot of hidden money and if you're paying a lot in taxes that you can really go into and i i've really enjoyed the episodes and and wanted to kind of mention that point people in that direction because you might go listen to mike's uh, podcast hidden money podcast and realize holy crap i didn't i didn't even think about that or maybe that's something that's even more interesting than this other topic that i was thinking about so um is that the best place to go find you where where is there anywhere else we should point people to go listen to that yeah, I mean, the website's hiddenmoney.com. Please check it out. And that'll point you to all the different platforms the podcast is on or just type in Hidden Money Podcast on your favorite podcast platform and you'll find it. Awesome. And is it on YouTube as well? It is. It's on YouTube with video and your videos on there. Thank you very much for being on the podcast, Sean. 
Absolutely. It was a pleasure always um, being on there. And then, and, and also thank you so much for uh, sharing that, you know, I, uh, you spend so much time with our Vodacy family and, uh, and has, have saved our Vodacy family. I don't even know, you know, millions of dollars at this stage. And uh, it, it's always, everybody always just says how grateful they are. I'm so grateful that we've, uh, that we've been working together. Um, and, and, you know, personally you do my taxes, but just our entire Odyssey family and then being able to come on the Vacation Rental Revolution podcast and sharing your knowledge as well. This is going to be one of those episodes that's probably going to be rivaling the other episodes. So you're going to have my top two episodes because it <laughs> is fun to save that money. Like you said, you, you feel like that we don't want to know about the taxes, but we really do, right? It's there's um, it's a bit, it's our largest expense, right? At the end of the day, it's most people's largest, you know, they're paying out outside of really anything else that they're paying is probably going to be taxes. Absolutely. Ultimately. And, Absolutely. and so we, we, yeah, we want to be able to understand it, team up with the right professionals. And so Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Those of you that are listening, we know how valuable your time is and we always appreciate you spending it with us. And so if you like this, if you have just a second, give us a thumbs up, give us a review. If you have more than 30 seconds, share it with somebody that you think might get some value out of that. Those things really do help us, whether you're listening on your favorite podcast platform or on YouTube, we always appreciate the likes and the shares and the reviews. And so as always, at the end of every episode, I leave you with one challenge, and that is to go pick one thing that you can do today to start building that life you don't want to take a vacation from. Cheers, my friends. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Vacation Rental Revolution podcast. Share this with other people you think need to hear about it. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. Hey, Grace, is there a website? Yes! For more amazing content and expert advice, visit bodicy.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.